please um, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. be looking at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, ending this uh, section um, of Paul's praise to uh, God the Father, and in a sense, uh, the whole Trinity, each member of the Trinity, the Godhead, as he praises him for our great redemption and all the members of the Trinity working in that. Um, and with that, I'm going to, once again, for the sake of context, read from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. So read with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. These words revealed to your servant, the Apostle Paul, and recorded for us These words that, in a sense, uh, give us a, a picture of uh, your plan of redemption, of your uh, accomplishing this great redemption of, of saving sinners such as us and redeeming us from our sin and from this sin-cursed world, uh, setting us apart, sanctifying us uh, for your own possession to the end that we would be glorified in your presence, conformed to the image of your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Things which, in a sense, are, are, are too wonderful for us, too amazing, too awe-inspiring, too uh, 
great for us to fully comprehend things which we will spend eternity grasping, yet we are given insight, a, a picture into your glory displayed in the salvation of sinners and your plan for redemptive history, a, a plan that would be summed up and, and fulfilled in Christ uh, to the praise of his glory, for his glory, for the glory of you and of the Holy Spirit and the, the whole Godhead. Things which just are hard to understand and, and yet um, must be proclaimed and, and must be spoken and, and things which we have received and, and are to proclaim and are to speak. And so, Lord, as we look at these uh, two verses, and I speak your word, I pray for assistance, I pray for help, I pray for empowerment, guidance, direction, guarding, that you would guard my tongue and my heart and my mind, that I would only speak what you would desire me to speak to your people, and that my words would be your words, and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we uh, have been looking at this letter, and, and it hasn't been that long since we started this letter, just the beginning of the year. And uh, you enter into this, this great letter which Paul writes uh, not only to the church at Ephesus, it is primarily to them, but it would also circulate amongst uh, the churches in that region as many of his letters uh, were intended to do just that. And even if he didn't have that specific intention, that is what the saints would do. They would receive that letter they would read it before the church, and, and then they would uh, copy that and, and, uh, for themselves, or, or maybe other uh, visitors from other local churches would copy it, and then that's how the, the word spread. And it spread for, um, for our edification, for our building up. And as we read into this letter, this uh, book of Ephesians that, that just unfolds uh, just the glory of the church and, and God's plan for the ages and his working in the church through uh, the salvation of sinners and individuals and establishing his church. And we see, as I introduce this letter, all these relationships throughout this uh, letter, as as I spoke in the beginning, as we uh, I introduced this letter, the, there's a couple key words or a few key words uh, uh, to, uh, in a sense, uh, summarize this letter. Uh, um, one would be uh, position, our position in Christ, or the position of the church, or uh, posture. But I think a, a better word would be relationship, as we see the relationship of. Uh, of God with his church, of um, our Savior with us, uh, saved sinners, of um, also the relationship uh, amongst the Trinity and their different uh, uh, operations or actions uh, uh, within themselves in their own divine counsel, but also within creation itself. And as we enter into this letter, and Paul just 
begins this letter, and it was probably like many of his letters was probably dictated, and there is probably that he is preaching this letter to somebody who is writing it down that would then send it off. Uh, he just explodes in this praise. He has in his mind uh, the church and, and instructions for the church, but he wants to begin in the beginning where all things begin in the divine council, the Godhead. All things start from God and flow from God. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is sovereign. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and all things flow from him. And so Paul begins there with God in, in saving sinners and establishing his church and, and how each member of the Godhead, uh, God the Father, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit work together uh, in this plan of redemption, which in a sense was, was as we read, was uh, determined in eternity past. Amongst the divine council, as Paul begins this anthem of praise in verse 3, he, he begins with God the Father. As, that is, in a sense, uh, also uh, somewhat of the order and the function of the Trinity in their actions that, that God the Father elects, he chooses, he decrees all things that come to pass. And then we see uh, the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would, in a sense, uh, as John uh, says in his gospel, in John chapter 1, that he explains or reveals the Father to us in his humanity. Or even as we may see in, in uh, certain passages in the Old Testament, this sense of what theologians call a theophany. This, uh, pre this, this uh, revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ, and also known as the angel of the Lord. This, this angel which is worshipped, which is, has these uh, attributes and characteristics of, of God, not just a mere angel. And it is the pre-incarnate Christ. And it is a sense that the Lord Jesus enters into his creation uh, to, in a sense, uh, glorify uh, himself and the Father, and, and He uh, is our Redeemer, our Savior. He is also King, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is Master. We see Him most, uh, most as our Savior, that He came to save sinners such as us. And Paul would uh, detail this and, and go through this and, and, and how uh, the Father and the Son work together in salvation. That we are redeemed through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, as he says in verse 7. And then in verse 10, he kind of gives us a window into what will happen in the future, that this is for an administration of the fullness of times, that Jesus isn't just a savior of individual sinners, that our salvation isn't primarily about us. We, we, we come to faith and, and, and we think that, uh, partly because we're all selfish to one degree or, or another, but also because salvation is the most important thing for uh, 
any human being, any individual. <laughs> it's where you will spend eternity is important. It's the most important thing. And so we latch on to that and onto our salvation that it is our salvation. But really, as, as Paul um, speaks in verse 10 and then in other parts of the New Testament, we see that our salvation isn't primarily about us, but about God's plan for glorifying himself within his own creation and, and redeeming not only individual sinners, but redeeming a people and a kingdom and the creation itself. And that's centered around the Lord Jesus Christ that for an administration of the fullness of the times. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, meaning that everything will be put in its place, so to speak. As sin entered into the world and because man sinned and, 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 and sin spread to all men and then overflowed into the creation as we read in Genesis 3 that the, the ground itself bore thorns and thistles and even in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans under the weight of the curse waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That all, all these things will be summed up in Christ. That, that in the end, Christ will return to rule and reign in righteousness to not only redeem his people, not only redeem Israel, but to redeem the creation itself and to put his enemies where they belong and to put his people where they belong and then everything will be one with him, harmonized in him. We also see that in him we have been made an inheritance. That we are, in a sense, as we looked at last week, that we are, are uh, having an inheritance in him, but also that we are his inheritance as the firstborn of all creation, as the Son of God. He receives an inheritance from God the Father, and that is us, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And that, as uh, you remember, May, the, there's uh, one particular hymn and many other songs that would have this phrase, I am his and he is mine. And so he, we are his inheritance and, and, and he is our inheritance. And so as Paul rounds out this, this Trinitarian praise, he he talks about all the works of Trinity in creation, in redemptive history, in providence, in salvation, in, in sanctification, and then in, in uh, resurrection by the Holy Spirit and glorification in the image of Christ. And then he gets down to uh, verse 13 and 14, and he ends here speaking about this third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and his work. And sad to say that, in, especially in, in recent years, and, and probably I say recent in terms of church history, that would mean the past hundred years or so in, in church culture, that um, out of all the members of the Trinity to be blasphemed, it seems as if the Holy Spirit is blasphemed the most in uh, charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles that they attribute to the Holy Spirit things which he is, is not enacting in this day and age. But he is nonetheless active. And he is nonetheless 
uh, uh, doing miracles. Uh, the, the primary miracle today is the miracle of the new birth, regeneration of saving sinners who are dead in their transgressions and sins and causing them to be born again, to be made alive. This is all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul ends his anthem of praise to God, he finishes by praising the Holy Spirit for his work in redemption. And specifically, I'd like you to see uh, what he shows us uh, four particular works of the Holy Spirit in redemption. Four works that we will see uh, which the Holy Spirit has uh, uh, worked out in saving us, in redeeming us. First, we'll see the Holy Spirit's work of summoning, and then we'll see his work of saving, then his work of sealing, and finally his work of securing. But first, the Holy Spirit's work of summoning. Verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul begins with, with this, this action of, uh, on our part, um, listening to the word of truth, but it's really the Holy Spirit causing us to listen. As we have been uh, in our prayer meetings, we've been going through uh, uh, Revelation, the, the beginning of Revelation and, and uh, uh, Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation. And, and at the end of each letter to those seven churches, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if, as many of you, you've probably um, either had a parent or a school teacher say this to you, uh, you know, this distinction between hearing and listening. We know that well, <laughs> that sometimes uh, uh, growing up, uh, one of our parents would say, Are, do you hear me? Yes. Are you listening? Uh, no, And so there is a difference between hearing and listening. And Paul wants to, to show this, that, that, that the difference in terms of salvation, in terms of redemption, the difference between hearing and listening or, or, or receiving and understanding the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, so that, that we believe that the, the difference in that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit that, in a sense, is, is part of uh, drawing us to Christ to repent and believe, to be born again, and, and His work of summoning, as, uh, as uh, theologians would, would say, this, this sense of calling, which we read at certain points in the New Testament, this sense of calling, this uh, uh, salvific call or the call to salvation and, and it takes two aspects there, there, there's two aspects of calling in the Bible there's this general call to salvation this general call that goes throughout all of creation this this call which is detailed in a sense in Psalm 19 as David writes that the heavens are declaring the glory of God that there's this general call to all uh, of creation concerning the glory of God, this call to all sinners, all human beings, that they have been created. That, that this 
This whole world, reality itself, didn't just come about by some cosmic chain of, of reaction and accidents and, and, and chance. There, there's order, there's function, there's, there's design, there's beauty within the creation. It's inherent. And we see that. And yet man in his sin, he will either uh, suppress that truth in unrighteousness and push it down because he does not want to believe, he does not want to repent, or he will attribute that to uh, idols and other forces and mysticism and all other sorts of ideologies. But nonetheless, that is part of the general call and the Holy Spirit is active in that general call throughout all of creation to declare the glory of God within His creation. But this call also goes to every person within their own hearts. As we read in Romans chapter 2, that, that, that God has, in a sense, placed His law upon our hearts so that every human being is a moral being, a moral creature, has a sense of morality, of right and wrong, of, of good and evil. Whether they skew that standard or that, that uh, sense of morality or not, it's there. Every person knows that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong to a certain degree. Though they once again suppress that truth and unrighteousness so that they can sin without their conscience uh, being afflicted. But that truth uh, tends to bubble up. It doesn't go away because we, we know inherently that we have been created uh, with a sense of morality given by a, a, a moral and infinite God, a perfect God, holy and righteous, the lawgiver. And this general call not only goes throughout all of creation, it not only goes to every single person so that no one is without excuse, as Paul would write in, in Romans chapter 1, but it also convicts and condemns sinners. This general call that, that no one is without excuse because on the day of judgment, they, they will not say as, as many um, atheists or scoffers uh, against uh, Christianity will say, well, what, what about the native person away in the jungle? He, he, he hasn't heard the gospel. He hasn't uh, read the Bible. What about him? Well, he has creation. He's, he's without excuse. And this is what, in a sense, uh, Jesus would get at in, in John 16 as he talks about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness and sin and judgment. And so there's a sense of this general call. But I, I'd like you to see it a little bit clearer. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And as Paul is unfolding, uh, he, he, he is on the tail end of, of unfolding the sovereignty of God in salvation, that God chooses, he elects, he predestines, he calls, he convicts, he converts. And so Paul is, is in a sense, answering this objection, well, who, who will, uh, that, that's not fair, that's not fair that God is, 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 is sovereign in, in salvation. Everybody should be given a chance. And, and Paul, was, in a sense, says in Romans chapter 10, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on in, in verse 13 and 14. He says, 14 specifically, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, have they never heard? On the contrary, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And so here in, this, in Romans chapter 10, Paul um, confronts this objection that, that, oh, well, God is not fair because he doesn't save everyone. Well, there's a sense that this, this general call to salvation, it goes out to the whole world, but men in their sin will not turn. They will not heed the call. And there's also a sense that he also confronts the other objection. God's sovereignty and salvation. If, if God is completely sovereign in salvation in determining who he will save and when he will save him, then, then why do we evangelize? When we evangelize, as Paul would, would, would heed here, as he would tell us here, explain here, we evangelize because we're commanded to. We're commanded to. And we are the means which God uses to save other sinners. And so we, we proclaim the gospel. But here in Ephesians 1.13, Paul is alluding to the Holy Spirit's work of summoning. That there is this general call that goes throughout all of creation, but there is also this effectual call. So we see in his work of summoning, we see his general call and his effectual call. As Paul would say, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. And if, if we don't understand this from the word of God, uh, most of us see it in our experiences. If you have ever done evangelism or, or tried to witness to a family member and you lay it all out clearly and, and you just, there's no way. And, and sometimes they will even agree with you. And yet they remain unconverted, unconvicted. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that converts the Holy Spirit has to do a work so that the light bulb goes off, so to speak, so that they understand, so that they will not just hear, but listen. And they can only listen if they have ears to hear and ears to listen, as Jesus would say, not only in Revelation, but in the gospel. This is the effectual call 
of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work of summoning sinners to himself, to Christ. As, as even uh, uh, Jesus says in, in Romans chapter 6, that, that uh, no one in a sense can uh, come to me unless the Father draws him. But it's not just the Father drawing, it's part of the Holy Spirit through the Word calling sinners to himself. This effectual call, it goes to the elect through the Word. It's always through the Word. We can evangelize and, and we can come up with uh, quotes and, and, and uh, uh, logical arguments and, and, and things which, which may help our evangelism, but there's no power in that. There's no power in our philosophical arguing or our logic. As much as that may assist us, the power is through the Word. It's through the Word of God. And so when you evangelize, when you share the gospel, you always want to go to the Word of God. You always want to bring them to the Word of God. And if possible, open it up and let them read it for themselves. Because the power is not in us. It's in the Word by the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit works through His Word in His effectual calling, which goes to the elect. It convicts and compels sinners. And the result is that it regenerates. It results in regeneration, this new birth. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 13. And we see this. Uh, you know, Paul talks about this throughout the New Testament and other writers of the New Testament talk about uh, God's sovereignty and salvation, the new birth, the regeneration, the calling, the converting. But I always like to go to Jesus uh, and I think he... Uh, unfolds it uh, nicely for us in his parables in, in this one parable, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And, and he, he shares this parable in Matthew 13 and to his disciples of the different types of soils that, that the seed as the word of God goes out and some falls on the path, some falls on rocky ground, some finds good soil and bears Fruit, And then he says this in verse 9 of chapter 13, He who has ears, let him hear. Let him understand. He, once again, same thing he says in, in Revelation. He who has ears, spiritual ears, to listen, let him hear, so that they can understand how conversion happens. And then his disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And listen to this real carefully. Look at this real carefully. Jesus answered and said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given, this effectual call. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says, You will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes lest they would see with their, ear, their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. Because they see, 
and your ears because they hear. Once again, we see this, this difference, this differentiation between the, the, the spiritual sight and the spiritual hearing and the spiritual ears and the physical. He's contrasting, in a sense, the spiritual and the physical. That in order to be born of the Spirit, the Spirit has to do a work. He has to open closed ears and, and, and blind eyes to see, to understand. And this is part of his summoning through his word, through the word of truth. After listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's all by the Holy Spirit working. And for many of us, if, if we're honest and if we know, some of us we don't really know. Maybe we, we got saved in a younger age and we, we were already in church and we already, in a sense, believed. But, but we can't pinpoint the day. But for, especially for some of us who have uh, somewhat like Paul, that Damascus Road experience where we were in the world, we were living like the world, and then someone shared the gospel with us and the light bulb went off and we, the veil was taken from our eyes and we saw the world as it really is. We saw ourselves as we really are. We saw God as he really is. We saw the word as it really, and it just opened up. That is the power of the Holy Spirit summoning us and then saving us, which is the next point, the next work we see. As after he opens up our ears to listen, not merely hear the word of truth, but to listen and then to believe. Believe. That, that, that's a, the second uh, uh, verb here. That after we listen to the gospel of our salvation, we also believed. And so we not only see the Holy Spirit's work of summoning here in this verse, but his work of saving. His work of saving, which begins with uh, regeneration. is this fancy term of uh, being born again, of the new birth. That, that, that we were, as Paul would say at the beginning of chapter 2, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Nothing. This is the imagery of that, that Ezekiel has of the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? Lord, you know. This is us. This is unconverted people, dead in their transgressions and sins. This is also, uh, uh, in a sense, an illustration of Lazarus coming out of the tomb that, that God, Jesus Christ, said, come out. And he came out. This is a work of regeneration. We, we see this in, in several passages. One main passage that we see this is in Titus chapter 3. Talking about salvation, a, a passage which is good to memorize, good to use in, um, in discipleship to show the sovereignty of God and the glory of God in salvation. Titus 3 and verse 5, he saved us. And, and just right there, stop. Who saved us? He saved us. 
We did not save ourselves. We did not uh, work it out. We, we did not come to him just because we were wiser than other people. No, he saved us from beginning to end, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're justified by his grace, uh, declared righteous in his sight, not because uh, we are inherently righteous, but because uh, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us and our sin has been imputed to him on the cross so that he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might uh, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed, 1 Peter 2.24. This is part of the work of regeneration that all, all members, as Paul would uh, allude here in, in Ephesians 1, all members of the Trinity are at work. But we see here in verses 13 and 14, primarily the Holy Spirit and his work of saving, his work of regeneration from death to life. This is the imagery that, that Jesus, in a sense, tries to paint for Nicodemus. Once again, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 3. And see this, John chapter 3. This is where we get that, that term, born again. And uh, I wasn't a believer uh, back then, but I, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, um, with Billy Graham in, in the 60s and the 70s, this notion of the born again Christian. And this, almost a sense of a distinction. Well, you know, are you just a normal Christian or are you a born-again Christian? There's only one type, and that's the born-again. If, if you're not born-again, you're not a Christian. Whatever you say, you're, you're, you're not. You're not His, unless the Holy Spirit is within you. And, and Jesus is trying to share this with Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews in John chapter 3, because Nicodemus comes to him, being a ruler of the Jews, uh, whatever uh, uh, level of, uh, you know, rabbi or priest, whatever standing he had in, in that Jewish system, he had a, somewhat of a high standing and, and he was a teacher of the law, so to speak. He was a teacher of Israel and he should have known these things. He was a religious person and Jesus confronts him and, and he, he comes, he asks Jesus uh, about the kingdom of God and, and we read this. John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think Nicodemus is starting to pick up on what Jesus is getting at. He doesn't fully understand it, but he's not being facetious here. He's not being uh, just silly. He answers, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously not. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then there, here he says this, not only talking about the Spirit, but as oftentimes there's this illustration or analogy of the Spirit in the, the Old Testament and the New Testament of the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. It goes where it wishes, wherever it wishes. You hear it sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Once again, showing that this not only is God the Father sovereign in who he chooses, and Jesus is, in a sense, sovereign in who he dies for, but the Spirit is sovereign in who he regenerates and calls to himself. He goes where he wishes. He does what he pleases. As we read in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's what it means to be God. Which is hard for us to understand or, or to receive, rather, because we want to feel that, we, we want to think that we are in control of our lives. That we are the captain of our own ship. That, that we can, uh, can choose to, to come or not come to God at any point. And there is a sense that we do choose. And, and we are called to come to God. But we will not come unless the Holy Spirit draws us and convicts us and, and regenerates us. Causes us to be born again. And what's interesting is, is as Jesus is painting and unfolding this illustration to Nicodemus, he says to him, he, he rebukes him in a sense. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He's saying, Nicodemus, you're, you're the teacher of Israel. You, you know the law. You, you should understand this. You should know this. This is like elementary stuff. And there's several passages he is pointing back to. But the main one is in Ezekiel in chapter 36. And if you will, you can turn there, Ezekiel chapter 36. And God speaking through Ezekiel, in a sense, speaking about his redemptive plan for the nations, says this in Ezekiel 36 in verse 24, And I will take you from the nations... Gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers. So that you will be my people and I will be your God. Who is acting here? Not only in John chapter 3, but in Ezekiel 36. Who is acting? It's God is acting. And it's sinners that are being acted upon. That they are the ones being converted by the power of God. And, and that if we are to be God's children, he must cause us to be born again. The Holy Spirit must do a work of regeneration from death to life and from enemies to his children. As the Puritan Richard Baxter wrote in his uh, 
saints everlasting rest which i have commented on i've shared this quote before but if you have not read that book get that book it's free uh, by pdf the richard baxter the saints everlasting rest but in it he says this to be the people of god without regeneration is as impossible as to be the children of men without generation Seeing we are born God's enemies, we must be newborn his sons or else remain enemies still. I mean, God must do a work. And there's this sense of regeneration. It it's, has this uh, prefix of re, hinting as, as Richard Bass, Baxter points out, uh, hinting at generation. This generation, we think of it in, in terms of generations of family. But uh, he's using it in more of the, the um, literal, the, the um, original sense of being generated, of begotten, of being born. That we are generated from our parents. And if we are to be God's children, and not just our parents' children, but God's children, then we must be regenerated, born again. And this is part of the Holy Spirit's work in salvation, his work of regeneration from death to life, from enemies to children. And we see this not, not only in salvation, not only in this picture of being born again, but also in this picture of adoption, of adoption, which he points out to us. And, and Paul would also, as he does here in Ephesians 1, but he lays out for us this, this golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, at the end of Romans chapter 8, but also as I've commented on before, that, that Romans chapter 8, if there's one chapter to uh, go to for, for comfort or, or perhaps to memorize, is Romans chapter 8, but he begins that chapter talking about the, the, the Spirit. And you can read this for yourselves in Romans 8, 14. He says this, For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellows heirs with Christ. This is a work of the Spirit. Work of the Spirit in salvation, in regeneration, in calling, in adopting. And his work of saving is, in a sense, uh, and as we read... Uh, I've commented on this before. There is, in a sense, an order of salvation, um, but it all happens in a split second, so to speak, that we are chosen, we are called, we are drawn, we are convicted, we are converted, we are regenerated, we believe. And part of that also uh, is the Holy Spirit illumining our minds. So we see in his work of saving, his work of regeneration, and his work of illumination, because as Paul says in verse 13 of, of Ephesians 1, that after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. You believed. He opened up our minds to understand, to listen, to understand, to believe, to see things as they really are, which is in a sense what Paul would also uh, uh, hint at in 1 Corinthians 2 as he unfolds to the Corinthians this, this doctrine or this concept or this work of illumination as the Holy Spirit illumines our minds to understand the things 
taught by God. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. Meaning that a natural man, just purely natural, a natural person outside of Christ, the Spirit is not within them, they cannot accept or receive the Spirit of God or the things of the Spirit until the Spirit does a work of regeneration and illumination so that they can see things as they really are and see themselves as they really are and understand the world as it really is and see God. That God and the Holy, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, would remove this veil from their eyes. As Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. I mean, what he's getting at there is our wisdom, our understanding, our knowledge, our works. They profit nothing in terms of salvation. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that grace comes through the Holy Spirit. And so we see here the Holy Spirit's work of summoning, his work of saving, and then after he saves us, he seals us. He seals us. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. He seals us. In a sense, he places God's seal upon us. And we see here his work of authenticating or confirming our salvation. And in that, not only is he approving us, as God also sets us apart, calls us out of darkness into light, out of the world into his kingdom, and he separates us, he sanctifies us, and he sets his seal upon us. He marks us, in a sense, for approval. A.T. Robertson, the the, uh, uh, Baptist Greek scholar, he says this, in commenting on this, this passage, he says, to set a seal on one as a mark or stamp, sometimes the marks of ownership. We are marked and authenticated as God's heritage, as in Ephesians 4.30, which says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is uh, almost like you would brand an animal, a livestock. You're, you're sealed with God's seal. Also, uh, this picture of uh, the signet ring of the king on an official document that in the ancient world, and, and this up until probably even a couple hundred years ago, and it may even still be practiced. A monarch, a king, a ruler, someone of authority would uh, write a letter, a decree that would then be passed off and then they would seal it. It would be rolled up and there would be that wax seal and his ring was his stamp of approval, his, his stamp of authority, his seal. And this is what, in a sense, uh, uh, God puts on us through the Holy Spirit that in the Holy Spirit indwelling us and in, in, in being baptized by the Holy Spirit, regenerating, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, that is God's seal 
upon us. That, that you, the Holy Spirit will not indwell you unless you are His, and if He does indwell you, you are His forever. He, he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He, he is there forever. He, he sets you apart. He confirms you. He preserves you. He keeps you. Once saved, always saved. You, you, you cannot lose your salvation because Christ purchased it, the, the Holy Spirit confirms it, and, and really the Holy Spirit works in, in causing you to be born. All members of the Trinity are, are working in our salvation or, or have worked and are continuing to work, and he preserves us. Peter would, would talk about this in his epistle. First Peter, this is a passage that, that you would want to go to by someone, and you've probably heard this, and, and I've heard it when I was a new believer in certain churches, that you could lose your salvation. And especially as a, a new believer, that really shakes your faith. But then as you learn about that, uh, you know, what shakes your assurance is, is sometimes you, you question, well, was I really saved to begin with, or am I a false convert? And, and this is also one of the, the devil's attacks. This is why Paul, at the end of Ephesians, would say, put on the helmet of salvation, because that protects your, your head, your mind, your thinking, that you are, if you're saved, you're always saved. You're, no one can take that from you. And Peter speaks to this in First Peter. He says this, as he's writing to these exiles, he says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, meaning setting apart by the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having being, been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once again, we see the power, or the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And that also God the Father, Jesus Christ, all members of the Trinity working together in saving us, in sanctifying us, in keeping us, that he is the one acting and we are the ones being acted upon. And so we see his work of preservation, of preserving our inheritance, of, his, of preserving us in his commentary. On this passage, Charles Hodge, he writes that there are three purposes for which a seal is used and that each illustrates the Spirit's work. A seal is used to confirm an object or document as being true or genuine. The second, a seal is used to mark a thing as one's property. And third, a seal is used to make something fast or secure or rather hold something fast or secure. This is the Holy Spirit's work of sealing in our salvation. That he who, you know, as Paul speaking of Christ, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And part of that is the Holy Spirit's work as well of sealing us. He, he's, he summoned us. He saved us. He seals us. And fourth, he secures us. Verse 14, he secures us. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He secures us. And this term pledge, it's more of a a down payment would be a a better term. It's in a sense a synonym. Uh, A pledge, down payment, means almost the same thing. But in in our day and age, we understand down payment a little bit better. That that you go to uh, purchase, uh, make a major purchase such as a house or a brand new car and if you don't have the full amount, you put a down payment to secure that. You know, or using a wedding analogy, you know, you a man proposes to his his fiancee and gives her the ring, or you know, the dowry. This this is the down payment. The Holy Spirit indwelling us as a down payment, as a seal, securing us through his baptism, through his indwelling. As uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. The down payment. The Spirit calling us regenerating us, saving us, sealing us, and securing us in Christ until that time in which we are fully redeemed, fully sanctified, fully glorified in His sight with God throughout all eternity, face to face, as His people. We are secured as a down payment. The Holy Spirit secures us as a down payment for complete possession. Through his work of sanctification and his work of glorification, setting us aside, conforming us into the image of Christ for his own possession. Or as, you know, the recent pop song, signed, sealed, and delivered. We are his forever because he did the work, he chose us. He died for us. He called us. He worked in our hearts because if he did not work, then we would still be dead in our transgressions and sins. And for some of us here, this is why you can sit week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year. Maybe you grew up here and you hear this gospel over and over and over and over again and you yet remain to be unconverted. Because the Holy Spirit's yet to do a work in your heart and mind and yet even because of that you are still without excuse because you're still called and commanded to obey the gospel, to repent and believe. Because today is the day of salvation. We don't know if we're given tomorrow. And so this call goes out to the whole earth and it goes through his people and it goes through the church and it goes through his word to repent and believe, to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to understand that you have been created by a holy, omnipotent, righteous God who 
calls you to live a, a life of righteousness, to obey his law, that law which is written upon your heart, that law which convicts you and, and condemns you as a sinner, you're called to seek him for forgiveness, to call upon him, to repent, to trust in him. And so even though the Holy Spirit must do a work, you are nonetheless without excuse to repent and believe and to pray that God would do a work in you and would remove that veil from your eyes so that you would see and that you would seek and that you would hear and that you would believe. And for those of us who have heard, who have sought, who have repented, who have believed, we not only walk in light of that salvation and live in light of it, but we celebrate it and we remember it. And one of the main ways in which we celebrate it and remember it is by doing what our Lord commanded us to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, this or communion, that Jesus came, the second member of the Trinity, very God of very God, came to this earth, this sin-cursed world, took on human flesh so that he could live a life that none of us could live, uh, obeying God's law perfectly, doing what Adam did not do and what every man and woman since has not done, so he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that his body would be nailed upon a cross, that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree, that his body would be broken for us and his blood spilt for us. And we celebrate that. We remember that in the Lord's Supper. And so once again, before we come to the Lord's Supper before I pray and the men dismiss you to take of the elements, I, I want to remind you that this table is for believers. It's for believers. You don't have to be a member of this particular church, this local congregation, but you do have to be a member of Christ's body. You do have to be a true believer. And not only a true believer, but one who is walking in holiness and striving for uh, righteousness, not perfection, as none of us will reach perfection until, well, until eternity, until we are glorified in his sight. But nonetheless, that you, uh, when you stumble, when you fall, when you sin, you're quick to confess and quick to repent and to, quick to uh, seek forgiveness. Not for those, as Paul would say, that are living in gross, unrepentant immorality. That we are to examine ourselves to, so that we, are not, uh, we do not eat the, the bread in an unworthy manner. And so as I end and pray, I'd like you all to pray and uh, confess any known sins before you come and partake of the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work in our lives sending your Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we, um, we are prone to pray only to the Father or to Jesus, but nonetheless, you are God, very God, very God, holy, 
perfect, co-equal, co-eternal. And you are working in and through us. And apart from your work, we would not believe. We would not come. We would not repent. We would not trust. We, we would not obey. We would not serve. So Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would forgive us for diminishing who you are. Not trusting in you. And we pray that you would work amongst us, that you would save those who uh, remain unconverted, that you would empower us who are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and that you would be glorified in and through our lives as you conform us into the image of Christ and point us to him. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.